Then 20 laps later, Leclerc simply lost the back end of his car in the parabolica and crashed into the wall. And uh, this, this is as good a point as any to mention that 50 years ago, exactly the same thing happened, but then with disastrous uh, results. It was Jochen Rindt. He was on his way to become world champion. Something broke on the car and he ended up in the armco barrier. And I'm afraid he, he lost his life there and then. And for us who were there at the time, it was it, 50 years on, watching, watching Leclerc do more or less the same thing, was one of those, oh my God, not again situations. But mercifully, because the car is much stronger and the barriers are much better built, he jumped out of the car, ran across the track, and next, next week he'll be, you know, back in his usual number 16 car. Welcome to the Forza F1 podcast. I'm Aaron Jenkins, the editor of Forza Magazine, and with me, as always, is Andrew Frankel, Forza's Formula One editor. Like last weekend's Belgian Grand Prix, the Italian Grand Prix at Monza was Mercedes' race to lose, and after a race turned upside down by two safety cars and a red flag, lose it they did. Valtteri Bottas finished fifth, Lewis Hamilton finished seventh, and normal podium finisher Max Verstappen of Red Bull retired with an engine problem. It was the first time since Hungary in 2012 that Ferrari, Red Bull, and Mercedes did not appear on the podium at all, which meant that third place went to Racing Point's Lance Stroll, second to McLaren's Carlos Sainz, and Pierre Gasly of Alpha Tauri took the win. Andrew, we can talk about all the craziness that led up to that result and whether we thought that Sainz or Stroll would have been the more deserving winner on the day. But I at least think that in terms of storyline and sort of the fantasy of Formula One, there's no better winner today than Gasly. Oh, I, I, I'm absolutely thrilled to bits. As far as he's concerned, all the person, first of all, he, he was demoted a year ago. Mid-season. Mid-season, which is not very nice. Then, of course, exactly a year and one week ago, he lost his absolute best friend. We talked about it last week, how before the Belgian Grand Prix, he went and put some flowers down. And he went on, and of course, he dedicated the race to his late friend. And when, when at the end, there, there's a photograph, an iconic picture, when he's sitting there all alone, I would suggest in tears with a bottle of champagne next to him saying, I finally won a Grand Prix and I'm go going to dedicate it to my old mate. And I must admit, I haven't been this soppy or sentimental for a long, long time. It was a wonderful, wonderful moment in motor racing. The reason that Gasly makes for such a compelling story is that he was elevated uh, at the beginning of last year alongside Max Verstappen to Red Bull. This was his chance in the big leagues, and he struggled, and he was just dumped unceremoniously midseason for Alex Albon, who didn't know at the beginning of the year that he was going to be racing in Formula One at all, ended up in you know one of the era's top three teams, and has since been under constant pressure and constant criticism for not being able to compete with um, Verstappen. 
And Albin, for his part, would have scored two podium finishes, but would have has been taken out of contention both times after being hit by Hamilton. But Gasly scored his first podium once he was demoted back to, it was Toro Rosso at Brazil last year. And now he scores his first win. And actually the team's first win, now that's been rebranded Alpha Tauri, since Vettel did it at Monza in 2008. It's it's an Italian team that wins the Italian Grand Prix again, just not the one that we all would have hoped. Do you know how wonderful it was to hear the Italian national anthem for a change? I was thinking... And, and, and I have to tell you, uh, and because this is, this is sort of going on history lane, but I, I hope our listeners don't mind, and thank you for sticking with us. Um, the last time a Frenchman had won a Grand Prix was Olivier Panis, In 1996, I was in the commentary box in Monaco. He started from 14th place. Because of the circumstances, rain and the usual sort of excitement, he won the race. And afterwards, we were going, we were were staying at the same hotel and we were up in the elevator and he looked rather miserable. And I said, Oli, what's the matter with you? He said, I keep, never occurred to me that I would win this Grand Prix any more than Gasly this time around. And he said, I came in jeans and a, and a dirty T-shirt sort of thing. So I said, Oli, come into my room. I've just come from London. You know, I've got a suit. I've got a shirt. I've got a tie. We're more or less the same size. You can go to the palace. And he's never forgotten it. And this is, this is where it all becomes rather wonderful. And before I forget, when Gasly won and they played the French national anthem, there were three French journalists in the bubble, all isolated, all together. I think there are 15 journalists from all over the world who are in this journalistic bubble. And the French, the three French journalists sang the Marseillaise at the top of their voice. And I think, I mean, you know, how fabulous is that? It's been almost a year since we heard the Italian national anthem as well. I mean, it was, it was one race after this one last year when Vettel won in Singapore, but... Yeah, you know, it, it's that is, of course, the the anthem you want to hear when you're in Italy. And I guess technically we have a chance, there's possibility we'll hear it again next weekend in Tuscany as well. Yes, and it was wonderful to see the flag. Now, obviously, they prepared that long, long Italian flag down the pit lane for Ferrari. Not unreasonably, but the wonderful thing is that they, they were able to pull it out. Had it been any other team, they probably would have kept it under lock and key. But it all came together, and, and this one will run and run. It's not often I get this excited, but, but it was such a change and so, so wonderful. And these three young titans really going for it. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that I think that was great about the race, besides just having a, a different winner and a completely different podium, was we heard on the radio, uh, for instance, McLaren told signs to just keep it in check. Let's get second place. That's fantastic. And he said, nope, I want the win. And you saw him sliding out of the corners as he tried to chase Gasly down. And Gasly said after the race that he almost slithered off 10 times in five laps, trying so hard to keep signs behind him. Well, that's real motor racing. Yeah. And it's, I don't think it's any different than what we see um, Verstappen, Bottas or Hamilton do any weekend, but this is, these guys are going for their first win. This is what it's all about. They've never been in this position before in F1. And it was, 
it was exciting to watch and hear. Oh, I thought, I, I really think it was tremendous. I mean, we should, in all fairness, and I'm sure you'll explain that in principle, uh, the race was, was Hamilton's to lose. And had it not been for a, what you might call technicality, um, you know, he was, I mean, he was well ahead. And until that thing happened, and one thing to point out, and a number of people forget when they hear, oh, he's getting a 10-second penalty. It's not a 10-second penalty. It's 10 seconds plus slowing down, plus standing still, plus re-entering with given speeds. So it's more like 20 seconds. Oh, I think it's more like 30 seconds once he's entirely done. So what happened in the race was completely thrilling and completely unexpected. And because of uh, that latter point, it's almost feels irrelevant what happened in qualifying, especially because it was a Mercedes 1-2. But then... Uh, Signs qualified third, and Racing Point's Sergio Perez qualified fourth, pushing Red Bull's Max Verstappen back to fifth, which was not where we expected to see him, uh, although his teammate, Alex Albin, was back in ninth. So Red Bull was a bit off the pace, and it was nice to see that these other teams stepped up and qualifying just to keep things interesting. Uh, I'm just wondering if, if this had anything to do with the turning up the engine and turning down the engine and party, what they call the party mode, which apparently was banned. Um, it seems to me that so, so, something went wrong somewhere in the translation because, of course, let us not forget that Gasly also had a Honda engine, exactly the same as Verstappen. Correct. But Gasly did qualify further back, but he was, of course, ahead of, of Albon as well. And in case anybody's forgotten, of course, it's Albon who's displaced him from Red Bull, and Gasly has had the much more enjoyable record since. Yes, at, at the risk of losing my job, uh, it, it's been suggested that his name should really be the Great Gasly. No, I mean, it is actually funny. It's not bad at all. The 7,000-plus members of the world's largest Ferrari club enjoy exciting track events, an internationally recognized Concorde d'Elegance, and a wide variety of social activities year-round. Our annual experience with hundreds of Ferraris and hundreds more people draws participants and cars from around the world to our Concorde rally, track event, and banquets. FCA members receive the monthly news bulletin with its calendar of events, free classified ads for members, F1 coverage, and more. With our membership benefits program offering discounts at authorized dealerships and selected retailers, FCA member benefits are tremendous. Join today. Go to ferrariclubofamerica.org. The other interesting news from qualifying, unfortunately, was Ferrari's worst qualifying result of the year. Sebastian Vettel got knocked out in Q1, qualified 17th, and Leclerc, who made it through to Q2, was only 13th uh, on pace. It was pretty much the same result as Spa and nothing unexpected, but Vettel being that little bit further behind was down in part to new rules meant to prevent drivers going ridiculously slowly on their outlaps before setting a flying lap. But once again, we sort of created, instead of creating a train that backed people up. Instead, we got a train of people literally racing for a qualifying position, which is never the fastest way to do it. 
Um, Raikkonen got held up significantly. Um, Vettel got caught out. But on the other hand, seeing that scramble, just like what happened after the restart in the race, which we'll get to later, with faster cars battling for slower cars, certainly gave some credence to the idea of doing, for instance, reverse grid qualifying races instead of the usual thing. Seeing the cars battle so closely was kind of fascinating because we don't normally see that. A bit like Formula 3. I mean, it was, it, was, it, was, it was very, very good fun. Great thing to watch. Things didn't look up for Ferrari in the race with the team suffering its second double DNF of the season. Vettel retired on lap five after his brakes failed. We actually saw them on fire before he got to the Parabolica. And by, he got, by the time he got to the end of the front straight and crashed through the styrofoam barriers, he reported no pedal at all and still had to limp around. Then, 20 laps later, Leclerc simply lost the back end of his car in the Parabolica and crashed into the wall. Um, apparently a driver error but also indicative, apparently, of how difficult the car is to drive. And uh, this, this is as good a point as any to mention that 50 years ago, exactly the same thing happened, but then with disastrous uh, results. It was Jochen Rindt. He was on his way to become world champion. And uh, for whatever reason, the Lotus, well, I won't go into the details, but I don't think it was his fault. Uh, Something broke on the car, and he ended up in the arm called barrier. And I'm afraid he, he lost his life there and then. Uh, it was a total heartbreak. And for us who were there at the time, it, it, 50 years on, watching, watching Leclerc do more or less the same thing, was one of those, oh, my God, not again situations. But mercifully, because the car is much stronger and the barriers are much better built, he jumped out of the car, ran across the track, and next, next week he'll be, you know, back in his usual number 16 car. Yeah, when, when Leclerc went off, he actually lost the back of the car, caught it, and lost it again. And then suddenly he was off, and less than, you know, a second or two seconds later, he hit the wall. There was barely time to think about it. But he, as you say, he was moving right away. And then to see him literally running across the gravel trap was fantastic news. Although, I'm sure you listened to it when they said, are you all right? And he, the yes wasn't one of those. Yes, it was about, uh, uh, yes. So obviously it was big time winded as any human being would have been. But it was wonderful to hear him hear, say yes, even if it was a bit sort of shaky. Yeah, it was, it was for sure a big hit. And it's not the first time, of course, that Leclerc has made mistakes. This is he crashed out in Baku last year, for instance. I think this is the, the biggest hit he's taken. Um, but it, it sort of just capped the weekend for Ferrari. Um, they found a new reliability problem with the brakes. Luckily, that didn't happen to Leclerc, at least as, as far as we know. He took credit for well, he took the blame for the crash, said it was his fault. But it couldn't have it couldn't have been any worse for the team in their home Grand Prix. I mean, to uh, you know, you know how much I love Ferrari and we work for a Ferrari magazine and all that. But uh, to to not to have you I mean, to run out of brakes after five or six laps. 
having been in 999 Grand Prix over something like 70 years, with the greatest respect, it's probably Mr. Brembo who, who is at fault. It would be very interesting to find out, but hugely embarrassing. Yeah. I think that I've, I've, I've come around to your perspective from the last podcast, which is we just have to accept this is where the team is at. And obviously the, the engine issues aren't going away anytime soon, but hopefully once we get to the next uh, few races that aren't simply full-on power tracks, Fryer will move back up in the uh, finishing order a little bit, but they really, really, really have to get back ahead of Raikkonen and the Alfa Romeo, who would have beat them once again, probably. I mean, Ferrari engine cars finished 13 to 18. You have to hand it to Fettel, God bless him. He said afterwards, thank God there were no spectators. And he's right. So Leclerc's crash led to a safety car and then immediately thereafter a red flag, which completely changed the course of the race and turned it into the total drama that we saw. And the two things that did that were that, one, race leader Lewis Hamilton was given a 10-second stop-and-go penalty for entering the pit lane when it was closed during an earlier safety car period, about five laps earlier, and this was when it was reported to him. So as soon as the race resumed, he would have to serve that. And second, Lance Stroll, who is the only, I believe was the only car that hadn't pitted either prior to or during that earlier safety car, was under the rules allowed to change his tires, therefore essentially getting a completely free pit stop and effectively taking the lead of the race as soon as Hamilton pitted. And Lando Norris, who finished fourth, was a bit testy afterwards, saying that it was ridiculous that Strolled was allowed to do that, but that's how the rules read. What was your take on those two things? Well, this is not the first time that Lewis missed one of these uh, signs. Uh, I think there was another occasion uh, a while back when he, when he missed it completely. And this time again, he always said, I wasn't looking. But, what, but to be fair, he accepted it. Um, he had alternative but to accept it. Do you think uh, it was his fault? It was, uh, it was all up there, you know. Um, all he had to do was look to the left and not to the right. Of course, it's easy for me to say this, but I'm, I'm not doing 200 miles an hour. Well, exactly. And I think if, if I, I think I lean the other way on it because he was told to pit by the team and those two warning lights were on the left side of a right-hand corner exactly. that he's usually taking Absolutely. at 140 or 150 with three or four Gs of load. Um, but yeah, it was. I think it was one of those things. He clearly broke the rule, but I also think that it's a shame that the circuit, if they're going to close the pit lane, doesn't have a signal at the end of the pit lane where it's obvious to see. And that, that certainly doesn't explain why Antonio Giovinazzi did the same thing after everybody else figured it out. I believe it was on the next lap. So I, 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 I have to say, obviously, we know that Lewis came back past lots of people, not, not all of them, luckily. Oh, Hamilton um, went from 26 seconds down to finish seventh. Yes. After Bottas sat in sixth place, which he fell to from second at the beginning, in the first few laps, for the maybe the first lap, for the entire race. 
but that's a whole different story. It was not a good weekend for... No, no, well, this is where I was just going to mention, Toto Wolf was very generous and very grown up about it. And he said, the team lost, but it was very good for the sport. I think Hamilton said the same. And actually, for, for the first time that I can remember, when he was interviewed after the race that he didn't win in, he sounded very lighthearted about it. He, he sort of accepted it was what it was. You know, I think in a way, huge weight off his shoulder. Oh, you have to win, you have to win, you have to, you know. And, and so, so finally, finally, so, you know, finally he didn't. And I think it was a bit of a relief. He was totally relaxed. He wasn't moaning or groaning. He knew he had the fastest car. Uh, he was delighted for Gasly, as was absolutely everybody else. He's terribly popular. You know, not all drivers are popular. But no, Gasly is very popular. So the second part of that question was Stroll getting his free tire change. On the one hand, I guess it's not something that happens often at all. And it's the same. I haven't seen it before. Yeah. Roll roll of the dice that a safety car is. But by the same token, it was kind of silly. Yes. And then it was doubly silly that, of course... He held the lead for after the second lap after the pit stop, but then immediately lost it. So he put on a brave battle with signs when signs came through, I think two laps after the restart and showed that he had some chops, but as a whole, he was seriously outclassed by both Gasly and signs. Yes. And what a wonderful feeling it must have been for signs to finish second in the back of his mind. He must have been saying, Oh my God, Next year, I'll be, dri- I'll be driving one of the red ones. Yeah. It's a bit unfortunate for science. It's, it's great that he finished second, obviously. And it's, it's great that he had such, that it was such a, a clash in the final few laps to get that second place. But in some ways, it seems like if, if we hadn't had the Leclerc crash and red flag, he would have finished second anyway. So in a way, it was a lot of work to finish in the same spot. But, you know, he qualified third. He got past Botas at the start. He deserved at least second place on the day. The funny thing is, unless I'm very much mistaken, that he had a Renault engine, the much maligned Renault engine, uh, which clearly uh, was all right on the day. And again, it was nice to see that. And I'm not going to go into all the details of how they're going to change the name of the team and all that. We can leave that for next week. Um, it's actually fair to mention, though, that the McLaren is a Renault customer for engines, and they beat the factory team just like Alfa Romeo was ahead of Ferrari. So it's it's a little topsy turvy for the engine constructors these days. Well, they signed the deal with Mercedes for next year. McLaren, yes, yes. So I mean, it's all it's virtually impossible to keep up with all this unless you study twenty four seven. But bottom line is, it was a wonderful race. Um, well, actually, I, when, when you look at things that are changing, of course, uh, Williams, as you mentioned last week, changed hands, but this past weekend was the last race for deputy team principal, Claire Williams. She's, she, this was it. She walked away the new, she made a clean break from the sport and the team that her father started back in the seventies, I believe. Well, I was there, when he started. And I, I've mentioned the story before how 
He started in a, in a, in a London red sort of telephone booth and he was waiting for the calls and the girlfriend asked, uh, answered and said, Mr. Williams' office, how may I direct you call? And handed it over to, to Frank and they were all sort of in that little telephone kiosk, which we all know from all the posters for those who've never been to London. And um, he was as fit as anything. He would jog. I've met him at airports when he said, I, sorry, I can't stop. I've got a plane to catch to Geneva, whatever. Uh, then, of course, in 1986, he had this horrendous accident, you know, trying to, yet again, trying to get to an airport. Peter Windsor, excellent journalist, was there with him, pulled him out of the car. And since then, unfortunately, he's been a paraplegic. But in spite of that, the team went on to win races here, there and everywhere with PK, with Mansell, with Reutemann, with Jones. The last one was uh, Jacques Villeneuve in 1997, when he had that very famous come together with, uh, with Schumacher. But I must say, I was pretty devastated to, to see Claire Williams sitting there for the very last time, because that really is the end of an era. And I lived straight through it. I knew them well. Uh, Nigel Mansell, huge hero of mine. And uh, it's just part of history. And I wish it could have continued, but they ran out of money. Yeah, Williams was one of the great teams of the 80s and 90s in particular. And as we heard at the end of the race, um, George Russell in particular thanking Claire and the team for basically give, getting him into Formula One last year. They've been running around at the back for a couple of years, but at least the name will continue in the sport. And actually, as far as I know, virtually everyone inside the team, with the exception of Claire and Frank, will still be there. And if, again, if my information is correct, uh, one of the people involved in this whole Dorilton uh, thing is a gentleman who is, and now going into to British monarchy, we all know Kate Middleton, and we all know that Kate Middleton is uh, Prince William's wife, right? And her sister is Pippa Middleton, and she is married to the gentleman who allegedly will be running Williams from the next, ne next race onwards. Well, that'll be something to uh, look forward to. I'm sure we'll, we'll have frequent visits, especially at the British Grand Prix. You can guarantee that people will say to Kate, oh, you do come and bring the children and it's going to be a right royal occasion. Yeah. I think this is, you know, and why not for goodness sake? I mean, everybody's taking it far too seriously. Next up is the Tuscan Grand Prix, a new Grand Prix at Mugello, which has never hosted a Formula One race before. As we said last week, uh, with no history, it's hard to predict anything but Mercedes and Red Bull being back on top. But having the new circuit is fantastic, and it is a great circuit. I was actually there last year to see the Ferrari Finale Mondiale, and I think it'll be absolutely brilliant to see the cars roaring through that lots of fast straights, lots of blind corners, just out in the middle of the Italian countryside. I think it should be fantastic. Uh, it, was, it was a masterstroke by whoever came up with it and also to celebrate, uh, you know, the, all the anniversaries and everything else, literally just down the road. Yep, Ferrari's 1,000th Grand Prix as a factory team. And win or lose, uh, Ferrari made sure that the new Roma 
was very much in evidence at Monza. And I'm sure that at this circuit, there'll be many, many more Ferraris there. And if I understand it correctly, there are some lucky people who will be able to buy grandstand seats and actually enjoy the occasion. Because as we've said, Ferrari is much, much bigger than one bad season. Absolutely. That's it for this episode of the Forza F1 podcast. Join us next week after the Tuscan Grand Prix. Thanks for listening this week. We'd love to hear from you, so get in touch if you have any questions or comments via our website, forza-mag.com. That's F-O-R-Z-A-M-A-G.com. You can follow us on social media at Forza Mag. F-O-R-Z-A-M-A-G, no hyphen.